right, guys, welcome to church. We're talking about church discipline this morning, which I know is not a very popular topic. And part of the reason that we're studying through this is because the way that we decide on what we're teaching next in the Bible is not by having some brainstorming meeting, like what are we going to teach about, but simply by walking straight through books of the Bible. And I think it's important that we address this topic because there are two sort of prevailing worldviews that we're all coming into contact with on a daily basis. I'm going to call them broadly conservatism and progressivism. And conservatives are traditionally really good at dogmatically upholding the truth. This is right, this is wrong, putting people in categories of sinners and saints. And progressives are traditionally good at seeing things more in shades of gray and, as a result, giving people compassion, giving people the benefit of the doubt. But if there's a negative to conservatism, it's that those who have a more conservative bent often lack compassion, and those with a more progressive bent often say, live and let live. And what this text is going to give us a lens on for our community within the church as in an entirely different way of viewing human community. And what we're going to see in the text is that church discipline is actually a good thing. And the reason for that is because if done biblically, it both upholds truth and compassion within your community in such a way that it simultaneously dignifies us and calls us to something greater. So church discipline is a good thing. So first of all, we're going to simply walk through what church discipline is based on 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. So I'm going to read each section of the text. Again, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So let me first of all say that this is a case study. What we have here is not a list of principles on how to do church discipline, but we have a case study in the church of an example of church discipline. And case studies are helpful because they can give us broad principles which are applicable throughout all generations. And so let's just look at the facts of the case to start. So there is sexual immorality that is happening in the Corinthian church. And it is of a kind that is not even tolerated in the broader culture. And I don't know of any culture 
that would applaud what is happening here. A man has his father's wife. So there is a church member at Corinth who is sleeping with his stepmom. And yet, the church is arrogant. We've seen throughout the book of 1 Corinthians so far that one of the main characteristics of this group of people is they have a boasting spirit. They're proud of their spiritual gifts and they're proud of their theological knowledge. So on one hand, they represent sort of conservatism. They're dogmatic about truth. And yet, when there is an instance of sexual immorality that needs to be dealt with within their congregation, no one is doing anything about it. So this guy is coming to the church potluck. This guy is going to small group midweek. And he's coming on Sunday. And everybody is just shaking his hand and smiling and acting like there is nothing wrong. And Paul is writing this church to say, you need to do something about this. And the term that we would use for that is church discipline. Now, the reason that they need to do something about it is because there's a number of characteristics that are present in this case. That is, there is ongoing, unrepentant sin. And so where I'm getting that from is simply from that statement in the second half of verse 1, which says, for a man has his father's wife. So it doesn't say a man had his father's wife and then he repented. It says a man has his father's wife. So this is an ongoing sin that is present in the life of this individual, and he is hearing the teaching of God's word on a weekly basis, and he is not responding with faith and repentance, but is responding by continuing to live in the sin. So Paul says, okay, I want you guys to sober up, I want you to stop being arrogant, and the first step in the spiritual discipline discipline process is to change your inner attitude. I want you to go from arrogance to mourning. Now, when you hear church discipline, what you immediately might think of is like the Salem witch trials, like burn the witch. And we're going to start doing like crazy things in the church. This is the furthest thing from that. Paul says your reaction should not be to look down on this individual who is committing this egregious sin, but your inner attitude should be to mourn. I think this is reflected in another one of Paul's letters in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where he talks about how we should respond if one of our brothers or sisters in Christ is caught in sin. He says, brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now here's why we cry when we see other people caught in sin. Because there's a sense in which we commit sin, 
But there's also a sense in which sin feels as if something awful happened to us. It's because we believe the doctrine of original sin, which means that we believe that you were born a sinner with a sin nature, and you sin out of that nature. And that's not something that you did to inherit that nature, but it's something that, in a sense, was done to you by your forefather, Adam. There's a sense in which we sin, we don't want to do that, we feel caught in that sin, and we understand that any sin that anyone commits, we are also capable of committing that sin. So to the degree that I read this scripture and I'm like, hey, a guy's sleeping with his mother-in-law, and you say, oh my goodness, I can't believe that anyone could do that. To the degree that you are shocked by it, you are susceptible to do the same thing because you don't understand your own heart. So we mourn because we understand that we could be the person who is committing the crazy sin. And because this guy is not repenting, he's not turning away, but he's continuing to live in it, The second thing is, with this spirit of mourning, they are to remove this person from their congregation. So I think this includes Sunday morning worship, this includes midweek Bible study, and this also includes social events. They are to distance themselves from him, which I believe is synonymous in the text with You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So what they are to do is to remove the protection and the blessing of being part of the local church community, the family of God. And in so doing, they are throwing this guy to the wolves, but not primarily to get him, to punish him. But so that without the protection of the church family, he wakes up and sees his sin for what it is and turns away from that behavior. So the process of church discipline is not meant to bring punishment into somebody's life. It is meant to bring them to a place of restoration. And we were talking about this at elder meeting, and one of our elders, Terry Langland, used the great analogy to describe what's going on here of a hockey game, which is the perfect Minnesota illustration. And so he said that often the greatest fear of a young hockey player is that the ref, after they've been fighting throughout the game, doing what they're not supposed to do, is that the ref is not going to intervene in the next squabble because then everybody knows what happens then. You're on the hook. You gotta drop the gloves. You gotta take the helmet off and you gotta fight it out. But it's the greatest fear for these guys because they know they might get the absolute crap beat out of them. But what the ref is saying is, okay, if you're gonna fight, if you're gonna break the rules, if you guys are gonna be like that, then I'm gonna let you have it your way. And hopefully, by letting you have it your way, 
you'll learn your lesson and you'll stop doing the stupid stuff throughout the game. And what Paul is saying is in the church, we have to let people have it their way. Sometimes it is necessary when somebody is living in crazy, unrepentant immorality to remove the protection of the church, to say, actually, you're not welcome here anymore so that they can see what they're doing and turn away from it. Now, one of the difficulties of this particular case study is that we are coming into the case study midstream. If church discipline is done correctly and biblically, this would be at the very end of the process. So let me walk you through what it would look like if somebody was caught in some sort of sin in this church, if we were to walk out the church discipline process biblically. So the place that I would turn, first of all, would be to Matthew chapter 18, to the words of Jesus himself, and verses 15 through 17. Jesus starts us at the beginning of the process. And he says, this is what this would look like. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, first of all, broadly, I want you to notice that the church discipline process, contrary to popular belief, is not a top-down process. This is somebody in your life who is your friend, who also goes to this church, or somebody in your connection group, is caught in some kind of sinful behavior. You are not to talk to everybody about that within your connection group and begin to gossip about that person first. The first thing you're to do is to go to that person in a one-on-one setting and say, hey, I've noticed that there is this sinful pattern in your life and I want to make you aware that that is not pleasing to God. Now, most of the time, if that person is a committed follower of Jesus, they will listen to you and repent, in my experience. But if they don't, the second thing you're to do is not, it doesn't say grab one of the elders of the church or grab a pastor in the church and let's make this a top-down thing. It says grab another friend from your connection group or your friend group and go to that person again and have the same conversation again and see if you can get a different response because now there's two of you. Then, if that person refuses to repent again, this text says, tell it to the church. Now, I think in our cultural context, the appropriate way to apply this is not, hey, let's get you up on stage and have you announce it to 600 people. But I think rather the appropriate context to lay this out would be to lay it out to your connection group. And you would say, hey, I went and talked to this person about this, and then we went and talked to this person about this, and they did not listen. 
And then the entire group would sort of be having an ongoing conversation with this person. Now, the process that I just outlined might take months. It's slow. It's gentle. It's kind. And then we're at the place where we started in 1 Corinthians. If they refuse to repent, at that point, you would begin to treat that person as a Gentile or a tax collector, and what that means is you would relationally distance yourself for them in hopes that removing the protection of the church family would lead them to restored relationship with Christ. So the purpose of church discipline is to lead people to restored relationship with people and with Christ. So what should our response be to this process being a biblical reality? I think there's one of two possible responses. One is, really? Like, we live in the year 2022 and we're going to do this? Are you kidding me? But I think that the correct biblical response is to examine yourself and to see that you are so crazy that you could end up sleeping with your stepmom or doing something real nuts like that. And you really want to follow after Jesus for the rest of your life, but you understand you could get caught in that type of transgression and you want to be part of a church family where people are both bold enough to call you out but humble enough to do it with tears. And so I think what I want us to do is to embrace this truth as something that we will apply in our lives, in our interpersonal relationships, and that we would be open to in terms of other people calling us out. So that's what church discipline is. Okay, why is church discipline done? Why in the world do Christians do something like this? Paul continues in verses Six and seven. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven, roughly speaking, is yeast. And he's saying if you put a little bit of yeast in a lump of dough, it makes the whole batch of dough rise. So he's saying the reason that we need to deal with sin consistently and constantly in our own lives and the lives of those around us within the church is if we don't deal with it, it will consume us. It will infect and affect everything that we do, and we will become a church in name only. But we will lose our mission, and we will lose our passion 
for Jesus. She says, we don't want that to happen. And the reason that we don't want that to happen goes deeper than just us becoming immoral. It gets down to the very heart of what we believe, the gospel itself. I'm getting that from verse 7, the middle, where he starts off his sentence with the word for. And he says, we're supposed to cleanse out the old leaven that we may be a new lump and be unleavened because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, I think when Paul is teaching this church on church discipline, he's likely having his quiet time in the book of Exodus. And he's thinking back to the Passover. The Passover happened in Egypt when Moses came to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he told the Pharaoh famously to let his people go. And a number of times, Pharaoh would not let the people of God go. And so the last plague that was to happen in Egypt that would finally seal the deal and he would let the people of Israel go was the angel of death would pass through this vast city and every firstborn son in the entire city would die in one night. With the exception of those Israelites who listened to the word of God and put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. They put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, and when they did that, they all ate unleavened bread. And the reason they were to eat unleavened bread was because the purpose of the blood over the doorpost, yes, was to save them from the angel of death, but the ultimate purpose of it was so that they would have time to get out Get out of Egypt. Run for the hills. Get, get out as fast as they could. And they didn't even have time for the dough to rise. And Paul is saying that story was not just there for their benefit. But that story is there for our benefit. And it's there for our benefit in this way. Christ, Jesus, is the ultimate Passover lamb. And he died in your place, for your sin. Yes, so that you could escape the wrath of God. Yes, so that you could be forgiven. Yes, so that you could be cleansed. Yes, so that you could raise your hands and sing about the love of God. Yes, so that we could say, it's okay to not be okay. But also, so that we could get out of the sinful patterns in our lives, so that we could run away from the, the sin which so easily entangles us so that we could become a people who are zealous for good works. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you. He also died to empower you to live an entirely new kind of life. So the reason for church discipline is because it honors the purpose for which Christ died. Jesus didn't just die so that you could say, thank you for your substitutionary sacrifice on my behalf, but now I'm going to go live however I want. 
He died so that you would say thank you, not just with your mouth, but with your life. By running to him in a life of purity. And so now, our lives are to be a celebration of this Passover. Now, after the Passover happened, the Israelites were to celebrate it on a yearly basis with a huge feast. And one of the markers of the meal that they would have at that feast would be unleavened bread. They would have this big party, and on the table, there would be a loaf of unleavened bread, which would remind them of what Christ had done, but would also remind them of who they were to be. And here's the way that Paul summarizes the lifestyle of a Christian who has embraced both of these realities. He says that we are to get rid of the leaven of malice and evil. So that word evil there, it literally means hiding purposes and desires. So don't think of of evil as just doing the wrong thing. But he's saying that evil is living within the church community as if you're living as a true Christian, but hiding your true purposes and desires to continue to live in a life of sin. He says, so we're to get rid of that. Get rid of the pretense. And instead, replace it with sincerity. Here's how I would define sincerity. Owning up. Telling the truth about yourself. Being real about who you are, what you're doing, what you've done. He's not contrasting evil with perfection. He's contrasting evil with sincerity. I don't know if you've tried to be perfect. That's impossible. But all of us can own up. All of us can be real. All of us can stop hiding and tell the truth about ourselves. And what you'll experience if you do that is something really surprising. God loves the brokenhearted. And he draws near to those who are crushed in spirit. He is not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who need him. Have you ever noticed this? That it's way easier to hug a dirty kid than it is to hug a stiff kid? You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you send a kid out in the yard, and they've been rolling around in the mud all day, or they've been playing in the rain, and they are soaked, or they, they, they rolled through like that muddy snow, and they come in, what's the first thing a kid does? Like this. Like, they're like, come on, hug me. But you guys all know the kid who walks in the room, and they're like, like this. And you're like, I can't hug you, bro. Like, you're too slouchy. And you got your head down. I think that's what this text is saying is God is looking for people of sincerity who are saying, this is where I'm at. 
This is who I am. I need your grace, all of it. Not just the grace of forgiveness, but the grace that empowers me to take the next step out of the sinful dirt and into the light of Christ. Church discipline honors the purpose of Jesus by constantly calling people back to him. Okay, last point, and I think this is really important clarification. We need to understand not just what church discipline is, but what church discipline is not. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So here's an important clarification. Church discipline is not taking a judgmental posture toward the world. We are not in a culture war. We are ambassadors for Christ as if God were making his appeal through us. So when we look out into the world and we see sinners sinning, we're not surprised by that and we're not judgmental toward them. We understand that without the grace of Jesus intersecting our lives by surprise, we would be in the exact same place. And so we don't expect worldly people to live like godly people. And so our posture toward the world is the same as God's posture toward the world. Not God so judged the world, but God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. So our mission to the world is to give them Jesus, not our morality or our judgmental glances. And yet, we are to uphold the truth. Where? Within our church family. We take sin seriously. And especially in our own lives. Now, some of us were like, man, I'm just glad this sermon doesn't apply to me because church discipline only applies when you're living in really overt, egregious, crazy sin. Hold on. Look what he says here in verse 11. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Some of you are like, whew, glad I'm not guilty of that one. Or greed. Or is an idolater. 
that is, worships anything above the one true God. A reviler, a drunkard, or swindler. A reviler is somebody who speaks evil of people, writes long, ranty social media posts. A swindler is somebody who's trying to swindle people out of things, always trying to get a good deal because they're driven by greed. Paul is saying we should be having conversations, really uncomfortable conversations with each other in the church about the way that we're living our lives. And that there should be, in a sense, a spirit of judgment among us. Not judgmentalism, but judgment where we are trying to discern together as a community who is seeking to follow Jesus in this crooked and depraved generation what it looks like to be godly. Because as we said last week, true Christians are not hypocrites, but are sincere, obedient followers of Jesus. So here's, I think, what this looks like. I was uh, standing in line at a Kona ice truck at one of my kids' soccer games, and there was a kid, a few people in front of me, who thought that he was getting the large slushy, but he got the small slushy. The kid went absolutely nuts. I mean, absolutely crazy. And started just throwing a temper tantrum. Did not want that slushy. Do you know what I didn't do at that point? I didn't step in and discipline that kid. Do you know why? Not my kid. But do you know what I was thinking to myself? What would I do if that were my kid? And I kind of played out the situation in my mind, and I think what I would do is I would have taken the slushie, I would have gone thrown it in the trash, I would have thrown that kid over my shoulder and taken him to the van as fast as I could, buckled him into the car seat, it's time to go home, right? So what that kid's temper tantrum made me think is, I've got to make sure that I take care of my own house because that's what I'm responsible for. And so here's the posture that we're to take toward the world. When we see the sin of the world, we are not to judge the world, but we are to think, left unchecked, that's exactly where I would be. We've got to take care of our own house. We've got to take care of our own lives. We've got to be diligent to guard ourselves from every kind of evil because we are so susceptible to go down those same tracks. And in so doing, we glorify Jesus. See, this whole message hasn't just been about church discipline. It's also been about Jesus because we reflect him as we uphold both compassion and truth. Look with me at John Chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, it says this. And from his fullness, 
we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that interesting? John says, from Jesus, we received grace upon grace, and the American church is like, yes, grace. What did that grace look like? Grace and truth. You can't have grace without truth. And so if we are to embrace Jesus as our Savior, yes, we love his forgiveness, but we also love his call to holiness. Because we know that as we follow after him in real obedience, that's where we find freedom. So the call is to come to Jesus with a renewed commitment to holy living. Put aside the pretense. Run to Jesus together as a community. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this call from your word back to you. We are prone to wonder And those of us who are alive to you, we feel that each day. How quickly we can run to sexual immorality or greed or to try to find our place in this world. And so we need to be called out. And we need to be called out together because it's impossible for us to do this without human community. And so I pray that as a young church, you would, by your grace, mature us into the kind of people that would have difficult conversations with each other in a spirit of gentleness leading to restoration. Pray this all in Jesus' name.